From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As Houston dries out in the wake of Tropical Storm Harvey, the extent of the catastrophic flooding points to a long period of restoration. As many as 100,000 people could end up homeless. This is not going to be a fast turnaround. This will not be a fast recovery. The rest of the country will move on. And here in Houston, we'll be dealing with this for months, if not years to come. More intense storms with massive quantities of rain and flooding like Harvey are coming, and global warming is a player. All of these events these days have a component relating to climate change. You know, it may be a relatively small fraction, 10, 15%, but that extra 10% can push you across various thresholds. And once you cross these thresholds, things break. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Hurricane Harvey merits extravagant language. The cyclone that first came ashore in South Texas as a Category 4 hurricane on August 25th set a rainfall record on the U.S. continent when Harvey stalled for days over Houston, America's fourth largest city. It dumped some 55 inches of rain that put 85 percent of the city underwater, closed most businesses and schools, and forced tens of thousands of people from their homes. Fortunately, the death toll has been low in comparison to the destruction, thanks in large part to the remarkable generosity and help coming from the people of the Houston area themselves and thousands of emergency workers and volunteers. Lori Johnson, an executive producer and newscaster with Houston Public Media, has been reporting on the city since the storm hit and joins us from her home in the northern suburbs. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Steve. Glad to be here. Yeah, I guess at this point, though, maybe the show should be living on the water for you, huh? Oh, my goodness. Uh, It's been unreal to see the images of so much of Houston underwater. So the sun is out now, but, I mean, where are people now in terms of processing the damages, both emotional and, and physical, from this storm? Some homes are still inaccessible, and so people are still in shelters. An estimate I heard is that as many as 100,000 people could end up homeless after this because their homes will be uninhabitable. So as you can imagine, this is not going to be a fast turnaround. This will not be a fast recovery. The rest of the country will move on. And here in Houston, we'll be dealing with this for months, if not years to come. What insight do you have from what happened in New Orleans at Katrina with such massive flooding? Now, I'm not in Houston, you are. Looks to me that you folks are in better shape than the early aftermath of Katrina. One of the things that has set this apart was the number of locals who, despite the fact that perhaps their own homes were flooding, got out, got boats, found ways to their neighbors, and helped each other. And what we saw with Katrina was that it was the most vulnerable. They did not have the kind of resources to be able to do that, and they were left stranded. And here in Houston, this hit everyone. This was not just poor neighborhoods. And in order to survive it, people had to help each other. Houston, the metro area, 650 square miles of metro area, and there's an estimate that 350 square miles are underwater. That's impossible for just local police and firefighters to get to. It had to be a community effort, and that's exactly what it's been. 
And of course, here we are several days on, and it's still not over. How long do folks there say it'll take for the the water to be gone, for people really to be able to get back and see what's happening? It depends on what part of the city you're in and what watershed or reservoir you're close to. If you're on the far west side in the Katy area and in West Houston, the Attics and Barker Reservoirs, these are the reservoirs where they were worried about the dam failures, so they had to be releasing water into the neighborhoods, and they expect homes in that area to remain flooded for weeks. So if you're unfortunate enough to be in that area, it may be weeks before you can even get to your home to see the extent of the damage. In other parts of town, it'll drain much more quickly, and people, in fact, are already cleaning up in many areas of town and ripping out carpets and sheetrock, and we're already seeing piles of garbage and debris on the curbsides waiting for pickup. Uh, By the way, how is your radio station, KUHF? How are you guys doing? Uh, How much flooding did you experience? Well, thankfully, we did not get any water in our building, but the entire building was surrounded by high water. So for days, we had a team, a rideout team in the building, and they were on their own, and they had to do everything. The rest of us who were out in the community couldn't get to them, couldn't navigate the roads. And now that the freeways are clear, we can now get in and relieve them and let them get some rest and take over. But yeah, the station is based at the University of Houston, and much of the campus was underwater. I know it's early in, the, in in this recovery phase, but what's being said about what could be done to make things different in the future? Because it's now not a matter of if you'll have this again, right? it's when you'll have this again. You know, first thing I want to say is that no city in this country could have gone through 55 inches of rain in a few days without massive flooding. A lot of people have been pointing to Houston and saying, oh, this is because of you know, rampant, unchecked development, or they should have known they had Hurricane Ike, they had Tropical Storm Allison. Well, there's nothing you could do with with that much rainfall in that short a time. But there are things that we can do to improve. And there are things we can do to perhaps change our building codes in the future. There are things that will have to be done for the infrastructure, for instance, the dams. The Army Corps of Engineers has labeled two of our dams in this region among the most unsafe in the country. But I am confident that Houston will will make changes. I, I do believe that Houston is a city that learns from its mistakes and is very innovative. And so I think that we will move forward and, and make changes. What efforts do you think that the, the city, the county, the region will, will make to help those people get back on their feet again? They're not just poor people. As you say, this hit all income ranges. So people who are probably pretty fluent in running their businesses or their shops or adding value economically to the region, if they're wiped out, they're not going to be able to move forward. You know, I think there are some things that we learned in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina when we absorbed 200,000 people from New Orleans and Louisiana And we got those people into temporary housing. We got those people into the local schools. And many, many, many of them stayed because they found that Houston was prosperous and welcoming. I think we will have learned some things from that. Uh, One thing that they did during Katrina was instead of waiting for FEMA assistance to get everybody into temporary housing, the city of Houston issued vouchers and put people into vacant apartments. 
and it was cheaper than what the federal assistance would have cost. So things like that, there'll be strategies that I think we'll be looking into on how to recover quickly and get the city back up and running. And maybe New Orleans will help. You know, that we've heard uh, so many stories of people coming here from Louisiana just to help with the rescue. And so many of them said to us, you know, they were here because of what we had done for them during Katrina. And they came with boats. They called it the Cajun Navy. And they arrived here and, and rescued people for days. But it is going to take a long time. And there's going to be businesses that, that go out of business. They will not be able to come back. And there will be people that will move away. Now, Mayor Sylvester Turner chose not to call for a mandatory evacuation when it was clear there's going to be a lot of rain. Tell me why he made that decision and who has reacted favorably or critically to that call. You know, there's been a lot of criticism of that. But we have seen here in Houston what has happened in the past when widespread evacuations have been called. What ends up happening is when they call these evacuations for large areas, everybody evacuates, whether they're in the evacuation zone or not. Everyone sort of panics. And, you know, we we use Houston as sort of a catch-all, but really what we're talking about is almost a 13-county region with about 8 million people. If you get even just half of those, 4 million people, trying to evacuate at one time, you are looking at complete and utter gridlock on the roads. And that's what we saw when Hurricane Rita was heading toward Houston. This was just a few weeks after Katrina hit, and Rita was coming toward us, and people were panicking and deciding to get out of town, and they were stuck on the freeways for 24 hours. 100 people died because of heat stroke and dehydration, because they couldn't get water, they couldn't get gasoline, they were stranded. We would have the same thing. We would have millions of people on the roads, but instead of dying of heat stroke, they would have drowned because our freeways were completely flooded. So I think that the mayor absolutely made the right decision. He knew that we would have, instead of a mass evacuation, we would have mass casualties if people tried to get out. So what is the risk from chemical spills at this point? What's being said? What's being reported? There has not been a whole lot on this particular issue in this scenario with Harvey. You know, Hurricane Harvey hit much further south of us in the Corpus Christi Rockport area, bringing high winds and structural damage. That's not what we got here in Houston. This was rising water. And so there hasn't been as much concern about the integrity of the petrochemical industry here. There has been some talk about the possibility of some underground or should I say underwater pipelines being compromised, specifically with the San Jacinto River, which runs through Northeast Houston and has pipelines running underneath its bed. So there's been concern there. But other than that, there hasn't been a whole lot of concern about what might happen with the refineries because they're equipped for this kind of thing. The the big concern is when we have a Hurricane Ike type situation with intensive winds and structural damage. Well, Lori Johnson, thanks so much for taking the time. Despite all that's going on, you still sound, well, optimistic, looking forward. That is the heart of Houston. We are an optimistic city, and we believe deep down that we can do whatever is asked of us. So absolutely, I'm optimistic, and I know we will get through this. And we really appreciate you and and everyone across the country, all the thoughts and prayers and help that has been sent our way. Lori Johnson is a newscaster and executive producer with Houston Public Media. That's KUHF 88.7. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. Thank you, Steve. 
If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Hurricane Harvey has been called unprecedented, which is prompting questions about the role of global warming in its record-breaking rainfall. So we called up Kevin Trenberth, a distinguished senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, to find out what he thinks. Kevin, welcome back to Living on Earth. It's nice to join you again, although these circumstances might be better, I suppose, in Texas. What is so unprecedented about this storm system? Well, certainly it's broken on many records, evidently, in terms of the total rainfall, both the extent and the amount at individual locations, many places topping over 40 inches. The storm itself has broken records. It developed to a Category 4 storm, even though it was in a location that wasn't ideal for a strong development. It was quite close to land when it did that. And then when it moved over land, it uh, stayed active for something like 70 hours before it went back over the ocean, whereas these storms usually die out once they go over land, and the average lifetime of these storms over land is about 27 hours or something like that. And so it was able to sustain itself because it was so large and all of the moisture that was flowing in from the Gulf kept refueling the storm, so to speak, and of course, at the same time, absolutely drenching Houston. So why? Why was it able to go back out to sea and get more energy and keep going? So the Gulf has been very warm. This is, of course, the time of year, uh, peak summer, when the sea surface temperatures are at their highest. Uh, They're normally getting up to about 85, 86 degrees. And this year, they're over a very extensive area, 87 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's very warm water out there anyway. It's warmer than normal for two reasons. One, there's a natural variability component, which may actually relate to things like the El Nino last year and the year before in the Pacific that suppressed activity in the Atlantic. And then there's also the climate change aspect. So the sea temperatures are higher because of climate change. And so there is tremendous amounts of warm, moist air over the Gulf. The rule of thumb is for one degree Fahrenheit, there's 5% more moisture in the atmosphere. And so a couple of degrees above normal means there's 10% more moisture in the atmosphere. And this is adding then to the fuel that's available for the storm. And, uh, and, of course, it adds to the rainfall as well. In other words, what goes up in form of moisture must come down. Yes, and so when the moisture rains out, it gives back the heat that went into evaporated in the first place. That's the fuel for the hurricane itself. And so it's been able to refuel itself especially through the spiral armbands that are surrounding the storm. And one of these spiral armbands was sort of stuck right over Houston, and the moisture was just continuing to flow over land long after the storm made landfall. And so this is what helped to sustain the storm, but it related very much to the fact that it was, it was quite a large storm also. So what's going on around the world? We saw those huge floods in California, but there's things going on in Asia right now. Talk to me about that. 
Yes, and so the monsoon has been very active, and there's been a tremendous amount of, of flooding uh, in the mountains in Nepal, in uh, India, in uh, Bangladesh from mid-July uh, up until the present. And and there have been something like a, a thousand deaths over in that region. We don't see much of it in the news on a day-to-day basis here because we're so preoccupied with stuff that's going on in our own country, but it's uh, not an unrelated phenomenon. Talk to me about hurricane modeling and, and how it might have changed since Katrina, uh, which is now 12 years ago. What tools are meteorologists able to use today in terms of getting a bead on a storm system that could really blow up in what we've seen in South Texas? So in the first place, of course, there is new technology in space, and there's some new satellites that have just gone up that NOAA has been using in this the so-called GOES satellites. These are the geostationary satellites, but they have a much more rapid cycle time and also much higher resolution. And so the details that you can see and the movie loops that they can produce on these things are absolutely remarkable and certainly much better than we had back in 2005. And then secondly, the computers have gotten bigger and faster. And one of the main results from that is that we can now run our models at quite a bit higher resolution. We still really need to get down to much higher resolution to really do these things well. And so computer limitations are still a factor on this, but certainly hurricane models that are not doing these things globally are running at quite high resolution. And the forecasts for this event were remarkably good. Kevin, President Trump's uh, budget proposes cutting funding for satellites and other aspects, including the entire NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, budget. How could cuts to weather and and climate data gathering satellites and systems impact the reliability of, of models and forecasts? Yes, there's been some emphasis on improving weather forecasts in the Congress, but the climate cuts are potentially devastating because the way to really improve weather forecasts, especially when on the extended range, say going out beyond a week to a month or something like that, really involves what we would call climate processes. It's the interactions between the atmosphere and the ocean and the and the atmosphere and the land that we need to improve in our uh, forecast models. And as part of the climate program in NOAA, all of the ocean observing system is paid for out of that, knowing what is going on below the surface, which is the ocean heat content that supports the sea temperatures and which is upwelled to the surface and stirred up by hurricanes, knowing just what's going on there is absolutely vital information. So it's quite short-sighted to cut the information that's really available. You know, it's one thing to have information. It's another thing as to what you do with that information. But let's at least get the information. Worldwide, uh, how prepared do you think major cities are for the increased precipitation that can be seen in storms like Harvey for rain or uh, I guess there are snow events as well? So with climate change, there are two things one would like to do. One is to slow down the process or or stop it from happening in the first place. The second thing is to recognize that it's happening and adapt to it. And this means building resilience in particular. Recognize that the threat from storms for flooding is much greater than it used to be. 
And so we're seeing reports of thousand-year storms, and certainly this is one. We had a couple last year with the Louisiana floods uh, just over a year ago, and also uh, Hurricane Matthew in the Carolinas. The statistics suggest that these were thousand-year storms. But these days, they're really not because of climate change. They're more like 70 or 100-year storms. They're still relatively rare events, and they're certainly extreme events, but their odds are actually increasing because of climate change. Are cities preparing for this? Not adequately, nowhere. We're not doing enough to stop the problem, and we're certainly not doing enough to prepare for it. All of these events these days have a component relating to climate change, which has a human component. You know, it may be a relatively small fraction. It may be 10, 15 percent, something of that order. But when you have an extreme event that's already going on, that extra 10 percent can push you across various thresholds. And once you cross these thresholds, things break. And we're seeing that more and more in the U.S., where we've got very good infrastructure in general, but this is also true in other parts of the world. Kevin Trenberth is a distinguished senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks. It's been good to be with you. Houston has been mostly sunny since Tropical Storm Harvey moved on, but the recovery has just barely begun, and it's a monumental task. There's no one better equipped to discuss how Texas communities will cope with the first Category 4 storm to hit U.S. shores since Charlie in 2004 than Robert Bullard. Robert Bullard is a professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University in Houston and a leading environmental justice scholar. And Bob, thanks for coming on the program. Welcome. Thanks a lot for having me. So how are you holding up in the wake of this massive storm? Well, you know, uh, I'm blessed. I'm fortunate. I did evacuate. We had a mandatory evacuation from, from Sugarland, and actually I drove out. I didn't have to be carried out on boats, or I didn't have to walk out to the waters. But Harvey uh, is no joke. This is some of the worst flooding and devastation that I've seen in my uh, 40 years of working on uh, issues around environment and justice and dealing with climate issues. So which groups are experiencing the most hardship from the storm, and why, do you think? Well, you know, uh, disasters and storms like this exacerbate inequality that existed uh, pre-storm, before the storm. People say that the storm uh, hits everybody the same, but everybody doesn't have the same resources to bounce back. And oftentimes governments exacerbate those disparities when justice and fairness and equity uh, are not somehow built into making communities bounce back and making them whole. Talk to me about the federal flood insurance program and how well or how poorly it does to protect those who are at social disadvantage. Well, you know, the, the flood insurance program basically has run low. We have had disasters after disasters and not enough money is put in that program. And many of our communities uh, are located and built in areas that are very dangerous. And buying flood insurance and making sure that people have regular health insurance and, and other uh, property insurance, those things are not equally distributed across our society. And so when disasters hit, those individuals who may not have the resources to buy the kinds of protection that's needed, they'll basically be left behind. So the idea of insurance 
it's not enough just to have insurance. The fact that many of our communities, vulnerable communities, are placed at risk because of where they are located, because of redlining and because of residential segregation and land use policies that place certain populations in certain geographic locations. And in the South, you know, Jim Crow did it. You know, where you live oftentimes depended on not just your income, but your race. Zip code is still the most potent factor that determines health and well-being, and all zip codes are not created equal. So having insurance does not necessarily provide protection when it comes to equal protection. Houston is a majority-minority city, majority of people of some kind of color, largely Hispanic, but there's a substantial black community, even an Asian community there. How is Houston doing comparing to how New Orleans and the state of Louisiana dealt with Katrina? Well, I think there are a number of similarities in terms of the fact that New Orleans is a majority African-American city. Houston is very diverse. It's one of the most racially diverse cities in the country. We're talking nearly three quarters of the population of people of color. But when you talk about uh, diversity in terms of economics and political clout and decision-making, that diversity stops. And so when we talk about uh, making sure that uh, when we get in the room and start talking about how we've got to uh, rebuild our city and how we're going to revitalize and how we're going to plan for a future, that diversity somehow in many cases don't show up in the room. And that has to change. And I hope this tragedy uh, will have a silver lining and that it will show that we have to do a better job in, in bringing you know, that diversity into that decision-making process. And I think it's, it's more than just, you know, color coordinating a meeting. It has to be real and it has to be authentic. Professor, about a third of the nation's oil and gas reserves are housed in southeast Texas. What are the risks of an accidental release of toxic substances from that petrochemical complex? There were a lot of problems in New Orleans after Katrina along those lines. I think we have to be very cognizant of the fact that we're in a very risky and precarious situation in terms of, of where our, our refineries and petrochemical plants are located and looking at the flooding and looking at the to account the many voices that have been speaking for decades in those fence line communities as to what it means to live so close to these dangerous facilities. We have to start planning for reducing those risks and threats and talk about how do we um, uh, do something that's different and, and something that's better. Given the reality of climate change and climate disruption and the likelihood of more and more events like this, to what extent are local, state, and federal officials factoring climate disruption into plans to rebuild Houston? Well, I think the local officials are strongly moving in that direction and building a climate action plan and a clean energy plan. As you move up, you know, the food chain, when you get to the state level, there's less inclination to talk about climate change as something that's real. And as when you get to the federal level, it's even less uh, likely that people are uh, advocating for and wanting to uh, build that. But locally, uh, I think there's a strong emphasis to build climate resilient communities and build climate resiliency and climate action into that frame for rebuilding and recovery. Now, how that will go over with the, the feds that are pushing money down this way and whether or not there will be some conflict or whether or not there will be, you know, some pushback, I mean, we'll see. It's going to be a fight, and I do hope that uh, there will be enough folks who are on the ground to say it's worth fighting for. Otherwise, I think 
we're going to have some some major uh, major conflict. Robert Bullard is a distinguished professor of urban planning and environmental policy at Texas Southern University. Thanks so much for taking the time with us today, Bob. Thanks for having me, Steve. We've had a break over the summer, so it's more than time to catch up with Peter Dykstra for the View Beyond the Headlines. Peter's with Environmental Health News, that's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org, and he's on the line from Atlanta, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. Well, hi, Steve. Hurricane Harvey is certainly the environmental story of the week, if not the year, so let's just park our dark cloud over Houston for just a little bit more. All right, more Harvey it is. Well, first, the early estimates on flood insurance losses $20 billion or more, likely a lot more than that. They're on track with the huge losses first seen with Hurricane Andrews toll back in 1992 when it hit Florida. That's a major reason why reinsurance companies like Swiss Re and Munich Re, those are the giant reinsurance companies that back up retail insurers in the wake of catastrophic losses. They're one of the first industries to have started sounding the climate alarm about climate risks all the way back in the 20th century. Oh, yeah, the 20th century. Where did the time go? Indeed. And back here where we are in the 21st century, what of the two Texans in the United States Senate? Ted Cruz and John Cornyn. Well, back in 2013, enough Republicans crossed party lines to guarantee smooth sailing for a federal aid package to help victims of Superstorm Sandy, primarily in the overwhelmingly Democratic states of New York and New Jersey. But the two Texan senators were so upset by what they saw as pork barrel larding of the aid package for two states controlled by Democrats that they voted against Sandy relief. So let me guess, now that a bright red state like Texas is up for federal help, those senators are leading the fight for Uncle Sam's money to help Harvey's victims, huh? They are, and all while charging their opponents with playing politics by attempting to link Harvey to politics by blaming climate change. Hmm. What's next? Well, according to Reuters, Kenya is enacting a plastic bag ban for the ages, up to $40,000 in fines or four years in prison for using disposable plastic bags. Wow. Anyone who's followed this issue knows that plastics in landfills or in our oceans or on the streets of developing countries has become a huge problem, but uh, that kind of sounds rather draconian to me. Yeah, it does. But Kenya's environment minister says the new law will target bag makers, and Kenya is one of the largest plastic bag producing nations on Earth. They're not going to target a guy or a woman with a single plastic bag in the marketplace. And Kenya's leading manufacturer's lobby group says the ban will cost thousands of jobs and shut down businesses. So we'll see how it all works out. We will indeed. Hey, Peter, what have you brought us from the Environmental History Ball for this week? Well, hey, let's turn the clock back 29 years to the presidential election of 1988. George H.W. Bush ultimately creamed Mike Dukakis, but to help understand how that happened, we have to imagine a time when environment was front and center in a presidential campaign, and the Republican was attacking the Democrat for perceived inaction. Yes, this was back when Republican presidential candidates sometimes campaigned on the environment. Yeah, that 20th century thing again. Two months before the election, Bush launched a brutal campaign focused on the Massachusetts governor, Mike Dukakis, and his perceived failure to clean up Boston's harbor of shame. And Bush vowed to be the environmental president. Well, the first President Bush did push through a strengthening of the Clean Air Act and signed the International Climate Agreement that led to the Kyoto Accord. But four years later, he lost a re-election bid in which he labeled the vice presidential candidate Al Gore as ozone man. So go figure. 
but that pivot away from environmental concern was pretty much the last peep out of Republican White House environmentalism. But it did help give those of us in Boston our nice, clean harbor. Peter Dykstra's with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. Talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Coming up, celebrating the wonders of walking. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a minute, some glories of mud. But first, this note on emerging science from Liz Malloy. All signs point south or north, depending on which side of the equator you, or rather your cook pine tree, resides. Trees are often bent and gnarled by wind and weather over time, leaning this way and that. But the cook pine leans with consistency. Once only found in New Caledonia, the cook pine has traveled to many places around the world and is noted for the specific tilt in its trunk everywhere. But until recently, nobody took much notice. It turns out that the cook pine always leans towards the equator, a fact realized by a team at the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, who are working on a book about urban trees in the Golden State. Team leader Matt Ritter had thought that the tree only pointed south, but after studying 256 cook pines across the globe, the researchers found that all of these trees point to the equator. They also noted that the further from the equator the trees are found, the more extreme their tilt becomes. This growth pattern is not a completely unfamiliar trait in some smaller plants, but the cook pine's particular leaning habits are somewhat unprecedented among an entire species of tree. While the reason behind the cook pine's equatorial slant remains unknown, researchers hope further study will help them solve this peculiar phenomenon. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Liz Malloy. Walking is the basic way humans get around, and though it's not the fastest means of travel, it is a favorite. Even for the casual walker, it's an unparalleled way to immerse oneself and truly experience a place, whether wilderness or urban. A new book, Walks of a Lifetime, aims to tantalize the armchair ambler and the would-be hiker with descriptions of 30 walks of varying length and difficulty all over the world. Bob and Martha Manning are the authors, and they've logged thousands of miles on hikes of various lengths, and they're on the line now. So, uh, Bob, let me start with you. How did you two get into long-distance walking? Well, Steve, we've been pretty active most of our adult lives, uh, visiting national parks and doing a lot of hiking. But about 15 years ago or so, we were living in Vermont, and Vermont has a long trail that's aptly named the Long Trail. It was the first long-distance trail in the United States, and Martha and I decided to walk it. We did it in sections, and after we finished, we just felt so good about it, and we enjoyed it so much that we began to look around for other long-distance trails and found them, not only lots of them here in North America, but really all around the world, and we've been kind of obsessive about it lately. And I guess about four or five years ago, we decided that we really wanted to try and encourage other people to walk more in their everyday lives, and consider doing some long-distance walking, and so we started to write about some of our walks. 
Let me ask you, Martha, in your book, you feature several essays on topics like the health of walking, the ethics of walking, and the journey versus the destination aspect of walking. Talk to me about those. Well, there's more to walking than just going out and putting one foot in front of the other. We thought it was important that people think about why they walk and the many dimensions that walking has and how enriching walking can be. And when you're talking about journey versus destination, for example, we used to be pretty goal-oriented, that we wanted to uh, get from point A to point B and then B to C and so forth. But we found that the more we walked, the more we were able to really relax into the experience itself. And that oftentimes, for example, on the religious pilgrimages, the walk itself became more important than the destination. And it's important for people to realize things like that, that there are many benefits to walking. There are things they ought to be thinking about as they're partaking in this wonderful activity. At one point in your book, you have this essay that you entitle, Sitting is the New Form of Smoking. What do you mean, Bob? <laughs> I think among the many benefits of walking, we're really recognizing now that health is certainly one of them. I think that we're experiencing an epidemic of obesity in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Many people have sedentary lifestyles, and walking is a way to really enrich your life in terms of physical and even mental health. There is empirical evidence to back this up from a, both a mental and a physical health standpoint. So walking for us can be a, a happy activity, one that we really enjoy, and it's got this added benefit of increasing our health as well. And what about the spiritual part? You said that there are these physical benefits, there's some mental health benefits, and what about connecting with the, the spiritual part of yourself? Martha and I have walked uh, several religious pilgrimages, routes that people have been walking really for a thousand years or more, mostly for spiritual reasons. I think we weren't walking them for religious purposes, but I think actually we found that they maybe do have a spiritual dimension, even for non-religious people. They're an opportunity to really think about things that are important, to get away from the distractions of everyday life and to focus on things that are, you know, vital. When you're out there and the distractions of your home day-to-day -day life have been stripped away. All you're thinking about is getting from, getting along the trail, getting to the end point of the day. You take time to breathe deeply and relax into the experience through which you're passing. And then you look around at what you're passing through. And I, that's where the spiritual dimension came to me. I mean, sometimes it's a wonderful landscape that you're passing, but sometimes it's just knowing the passage of people um, through that landscape over such eons that affected me spiritually. Martha, which one of these religious pilgrimages did you find resonated the most with you spiritually and why? I would say the uh, El Camino de Santiago across northern Spain. It's 480 miles from the uh, Pyrenees at the border with France to Santiago del Compostelo in um, western Spain. And I expected it to be a very historical, a very interesting walk, and it certainly was, but you couldn't escape the spirituality when you see places that are worn from the passage of pilgrims over a thousand years. You can't help but sense that other dimension that is there for so many people. And we chose to do the whole thing, but people do sections of it and come away with the same sensation. So to what extent do different countries or regions have, have different conceptions of where walkers are allowed to roam? 
You know, there is quite a difference. Um, certainly in Europe, that's where we discovered a very different culture of walking. Walking is embedded more directly and more deeply into the cultures of many of the European countries and some other countries as well. In the United States, I think certainly we have a history of doing a lot of hiking, but it's not uh, so widely adopted as it is elsewhere. In Europe, for example, you're allowed in many cases to walk across private lands. Many of the trails, perhaps even most of the trails, are on private lands. And that's a well-accepted phenomenon, very different than the United States, where we rely primarily on public lands. Martha, in the book, there are a number of walks that you outline in wilderness areas out away from everything. But you also talk about the value of urban walks. Talk to me about that now. Well, that's been a real surprise for me. We are not urban people, but we have begun to appreciate the joys of walking in urban environments. And we've walked both in Europe and Australia and in the United States and have found these urban walks to be really delightful. They're a wonderful way to learn about a city and to really appreciate a city. An example I might give you is the great saunter around the island of Manhattan in New York City. We um, lived in Vermont and were a little bit intimidated by the whole idea of New York City. But walking around the very shoreline of the island of Manhattan, we learned to appreciate the different boroughs that we went through. We learned to appreciate the rivers, the Hudson, the Harlem, and the East Rivers. And we learned to appreciate the diversity of people that populate New York City. It was just a thoroughly delightful experience. We also have spent several days in Sydney and in Paris, walking out where the locals walk. And there's really no better way to learn a city. When we were in Paris, we never went in any of the museums. We walked all day, every day, and came away feeling that we'd appreciated that Paris is the museum itself, that we didn't need to go inside anywhere. Well, and indeed, it goes back to the health angle then walking in Paris because, you know, you go by all those bakeries where you can just smell the fresh croissant and, and all the stuff that they serve up. And if you want to eat any of that, I guess you better walk it, huh? Well, if you walk it, you can eat anything you want. And that's a, a real benefit of walking. Martha, what's it like to walk as a couple? You guys have been married how long? We've been married for 49 years, and we find that walking is a real highlight of our lives together. We enjoy planning the walks. We enjoy doing the walks. We enjoy reliving the walks. And we have really gotten a lot of satisfaction out of writing these books and finding that we're encouraging other people to go out. It's really a gift to us. And I think they look at us, Steve, and they say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And they give it a try. But you certainly don't have to be a couple because there are all kinds of hiking organizations that provide walks in neighborhoods and communities, worldwide organizations. There are companies that match up people who singles can come into groups. You certainly don't have to be a couple to get a lot out of a walk. I found it amusing one day when Martha came home from having lunch with some of her women friends, and she said her women friends were asking her, what do you two talk about all the time? And I just thought that that was funny. You know, first of all, we don't talk the whole time we're hiking. But secondly, it is an opportunity to talk about the, the things that are really important to us. You know, our family and our future and the values that we have and where we want to go on, on our next hike. I mean, all these things are um, maybe we don't have a lot of time to talk about them during our, the hecticness of our everyday lives. But the walks give us an opportunity to focus on these things that are more fundamental. Tell me, who do you see when you're out on the trail? Are they 
fairly well-to-do, white, educated couples such as the two of you? Or, well, who do you see? It's a great diversity, and it has a lot to do with where we're walking. And that's one of the things that's made urban walking a nice addition to our experiences, a nice addition to our portfolio of walks, if you will. We have a daughter in Los Angeles, and we go to visit her regularly. And we've done some walking in the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area along a trail called the Backbone Trail a wonderful 60-some-mile trail that goes right into Los Angeles. There we see such a wide diversity of people, people of different ages, people of different races and ethnicities. That's been really very refreshing and why we've wanted to include Urban Walks in our newest book. I think it helps to sort of democratize long-distance walking. It is possible to do that in urban regions, and hopefully, ultimately, that might translate into walking into some more uh, wild areas as well. And I have to say, in Europe, you see people of all ages out walking, uh, more so than you do in the United States. And one thing that has been a real joy for us to realize is that Universally, we found people to be lovely. And if you're, if you're a walker, you're a walker. It doesn't matter what country you come from or what religion you have or anything else. All that falls away and you talk about your experiences that you have in common rather than the experiences that separate us. So for people who aren't particularly experienced in walking and hiking, what trail would you recommend that they possibly start with? Well, I've got a couple of ideas about that, Steve. I think, first of all, I would suggest walking in your hometown, walking around your neighborhoods. If you're fortunate enough to be able to walk back and forth to work, that's a great place to start or to walk uh, down to the grocery store instead of driving or just go for an evening walk around the neighborhood. I think our books are about encouraging people to walk more in their everyday lives and then uh, considering long-distance walks. We've deliberately tried to offer a spectrum of opportunities. I think that the carriage road system in Acadia National Park would be just the ideal place to start. It's these um, really very non-demanding but beautifully sited and managed 50-mile network of carriage roads, non-motorized roads that one can walk around and really see Mount Desert Island, not only see it, but really experience it, uh, to hear it, to smell it, uh, to go to Jordan Pond House for tea and taste it at the same time. That's a good one to start with, but there are lots of other examples as well. And, and we find that the more you hike in areas that are familiar and comfortable to you, the more confident you get in your abilities, the more you're going to enjoy when you're out in an unfamiliar environment where you know things are perhaps a little more challenging. You know that you can do the distance because you've been doing it locally. And by the way, how many miles have you walked now in your walking career? Oh my goodness, I wish we'd started keeping track at the very beginning, but I took a look through the two books that we've written about long distance walking and they total a little over 6,000 miles. We figure by the time we add in all the walking that we do to get ready and um, the walking we do just to go visit the neighbors and that sort of thing, we've probably walked tens of thousands of miles. But I don't regret a single mile. Okay, so how many pairs of walking shoes do you go through in a year? Oh, Uh, my goodness. Numerous. Uh, Yes, numerous. Maybe a half a dozen pairs anyway. And if you look in our closets, we have our assortment of walking shoes, and then we have a few (laughs) pairs of, you know, real shoes in there because um, normally we wear our walking shoes because you never know when you might get an opportunity to go for a little walk. Bob and Martha Manning are authors of the new book, Walks of a Lifetime. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today. You're welcome. Happy trails. 
As the water drains away on the Gulf Coast, one reality residents will face is mud. But mud can have its uses, as Michael Stein explains in today's Bird Note. Today, we're walking the shoreline of a saltwater bay. The tide's going out, revealing a broad expanse of dark, glistening mud flat. This muddy plain might appear a waste of natural space, a mere transient landscape awaiting the rising tide. And that low tide smell! On a hot day, it goes right by pungent, heading for malodorous. But that mudflat fragrance offers an important clue. Mudflats are rich in nutrients, such as decomposing organic matter and minerals. Mudflats, far from wastelands, support a bounty of life, such as foraging sandpipers, called dunlin. Much of this life lies below the surface. Scoop up a pail of mud, and you might find, in addition to a clam or two big enough to eat, vast quantities of tiny snails and clams, worms, crustaceans, larvae, and much more. Mudflats also support a bounty of bird life. Millions of shorebirds follow shorelines and their mudflats each spring and fall, where they feast upon those tiny creatures hidden beneath the mud surface, a banquet that powers the birds' continent-spanning migrations. So the next time you wrinkle your nose at low tide, imagine the countless creatures that draw their lifeblood from that fragrant mudflat. I'm Michael Stein. For photos, ooze on over to our website, LOE.org. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Basklin, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. And we bid a grateful farewell this week to our great crew of summer interns, Matt Hoish, Liz Malloy, and Rebecca Rettelmeyer. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from John Gesso and Jake Rigo. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider, Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.